we're going to jump into the book of Acts. So why don't you guys open up the book of Acts. Um, we've been looking at this book for about four weeks. It's kind of week four of this. And what I want to do, uh, rather than kind of just uh, reiterate uh, some summary thoughts about the book of Acts, uh, chapter one, what I want to do is I want to read actually the entire chapter, which is really 26 verses in its entirety. And there's two reasons why I want to do that. One is because I think there's something powerful that happens when we simply listen to God's word being read, all right, without being commented on or preached on or spoken about, just simply reading it. Secondly, is that really when this letter was originally penned or uh, written and or delivered, it was actually probably simply read. In other words, it wasn't just one chapter they read of 26 verses. It was the entire chapter or entire book, which probably would have taken maybe half an hour, 45 minutes, depending upon the length and the speed by which the person read. Again, it's probably all read in Greek. So in other words, if you're in that context, you're like, it all sounds like Greek because it was originally written in Greek. So we're going to read just chapter one and just listen to the storyline because it's the great thing about the book of Acts is that it's actually a story. So just listen to the story of Acts, chapter 1, penned by, written by this guy by the name of Luke. So with that, the way I want to read this, I want to show just honor to God, to God's word. We're all going to stand. It's a way of us kind of shifting gears rather than falling asleep, shifting gears. I know some uh, don't like to stand wherever I get it, but let's all stand. Let's show honor to God, God's word, and we'll read Acts Chapter 1, verses 1 through 26, I'll begin, says this. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up. And after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, to them he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he had said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, and you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And then he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but... You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on at him, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing to heaven, he went. Behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and then said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way in which uh, you saw him go up into heaven. Verse 12, it says, And then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up into an upper room where they were staying, Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All of these were with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary and the mother of Jesus and his brothers. And in those days, Peter stood up from among the brothers. Uh, The company of persons was about 120. And then he said to them, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who had arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us 
and he was allotted his share in the ministry. Now this man bought a field, and with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and his bowels gushed out. Mm -hmm. It's great, huh? It's the Bible. Verse 19, it says, And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akhaldima, which is interpreted field of blood. For it was written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let them be no more who dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all this time that the Lord Jesus went in in, out from among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men uh, must become with us a witness of his resurrection. Verse 23, it says, And they put forward two men, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who also was called Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and they said, You, Lord, you know the hearts of all of us. Show which one of these two men that you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and the apostleship uh, with which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. It says, and then, they, and then they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Let's pray. God, this is your word. We submit to it. We ask, God, that you would use it to inform our minds and transform our hearts and our souls and our thoughts and... God, we pray that your word would now begin to reshape and realign our thinking with yours. So, God, we pray that our hearts would be open, be softened. God, we pray that you would just speak into our hearts in this moment. God, the words of life. And we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, why don't you all grab a seat. Um, in summary, I'm going to just do a very, very fast introduction or summary of all this. In short, what we see is Jesus is basically summarizing his earthly ministry. So in other words, Jesus' life of ministry on this planet uh, is very distinct and very different now that he's no longer here. So the question is, where is Jesus? Well, it tells us Jesus is now in heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. That's the whole thing that took place at the beginning of the book of Acts where it says Jesus ascended into heaven. So what does that mean? Uh, in short, what it means is that Jesus is continuing his ministry, but his ministry is now being continued through what we describe as the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit continues his ministry of Jesus through what we would call agents. Those agents happen to be a bunch of messed up, broken, ruined, defiled, sinful people that have been made right. In other words, you're like trying to figure out who is that? That's you, if you are a follower of Jesus. All of us, at some point, if we are in Christ, if we follow Jesus, that means that we become those agents. The Bible's word for that is the church. The church is the means by which Jesus continues his work through the power and the enabling of the Holy Spirit. So what we see is Jesus is continuing this work, and yet as the church begins to posture itself to do all that God is about to do, in other words, Acts chapter 2 and 3, all the way through the rest of the book of Acts, what we see is that the church is kind of in this sort of like holding pattern where Jesus ascends to heaven. The church is now meeting in a little upper room in Jerusalem. Um, to give you a little bit of an insight as to the, what types of circumstances are going through in their minds, the question is, are these early Christians really excited and just waiting and eager to go out and preach Jesus? The answer is absolutely no. They're terrified. They're frightened. Why? 
because just a few weeks prior, they saw what Rome, as well as the religious system, did to Jesus. They brutally murdered their master. So you imagine, if you are a follower of this guy, all right, the follower of him, and now here you are in the middle of literally the hot seat, the place where they crucified Jesus, and imagine you have family, you have maybe a wife or a husband or some grandparents or a young kid, and here you are in the middle of this upper room, and you know that you have witnessed this resurrection of Jesus, but you also know that the world at large absolutely despises this Jesus. So in other words, you're not excited about doing anything about promoting this cause. Did you follow that so far? Nobody's excited about that. Nobody wants to go around and preach Jesus. They don't want to go to the street corner and then begin to preach Jesus. They don't want to share the four spiritual laws. They don't want to do these things because they know that it's literally a death sentence. And not just any death sentence, it's a brutal death sentence. Following? So here they are in the middle of this city, in this upper room, waiting for things to take place. But now they got a problem. The problem that we're basically told in summary is that Judas has betrayed the, the, the team, the group, the 12. There were 12 apostles chosen by Jesus. One of those 12 has actually turned out to be a betrayer. He turns his back on Jesus. We're told in the story. Again, some of you guys uh, caught that. It was kind of a crazy, brutal scenario. He ends up betraying Jesus. He gets money. He goes out and buys a field. And on that field, he ends up hanging himself and dies in a really brutal, horrible, terrifying type of a manner. And what now is happening in the minds of the apostles is they're really working through this. It's just like, well, we got a problem. And the problem is that Jesus called 12, but we only got 11 now. There were 12 apostles, 12 main leaders, structural leaders, if you want to think of it that way, that were poised to then begin to launch this Jesus movement into the world. Again, they're terrified, but they are looking at this and saying, we got a problem. We need to figure out how to satisfy this dilemma of 12 minus 1. In other words, 11. We need one more person, in in other words, to complete this structure that Jesus began. So the question really is kind of going through their minds is, what do we do? How do we deal with this? How do we reorient ourselves in the midst of this great tragedy, tragedy, this great loss that Judas has gone for. So in other words, to them, it's a real big dilemma. It's a real big problem. So what amazes me is I kind of read through this, and um, I was really kind of wrestling with just going on into chapter 2, but as I kept reading this passage, it just I kept felt, it felt like God was bringing me back to the same thing over and over again, and just showing me, I think in some ways, that the early church, they struggled with real-time scenarios. Difficulties, challenges, and the question that I was confronted with is really how did they deal with this? How was it that they were actually working through these challenges in light of really the fact that they didn't have a template to follow? They didn't have a church you know, website to go follow and find information. They didn't have a mentor to contact. They couldn't listen to Tim Keller's MP3s. They had no way to get access to any information. There was no study guide. There was no church growth manual. They had nothing except a few things that we'll look at. And so they're trying to navigate their way forward. How do we keep moving forward in this work that we know that God's called us to, and yet it's terrifying out there. And yet now we have this dilemma because Jesus originally called 12. Now we only have 11. So what do we do? So what I want to look at real quickly here this morning, and it's kind of a short look at or examination at what they did. And there's four things that I think that kind of arise to the surface that I look at and see 
the way that they moved forward. So the first thing that I look at in the story is that they saw themselves really within the story of God. The first thing I think is that they actually saw or located themselves within the story of God. What I mean by that is really throughout this entire passage, they realize that in spite of the fact that Judas betrayed them, in spite of the fact that they originally had 12, now they only have 11, in spite of all these potential setbacks, they weren't freaking out. They weren't kind of like, oh my gosh, God's abandoned us. What's going to happen in its way forward? They realized that to some degree, to some large degree, their lives were positioned in the midst of something that God is doing. What I mean by that is they located what they're doing in the, really in the story of God. If I can put it this way, God is unpacking, unfolding something in which they have been swept up into. Another way to think about it is what salvation is. It's God commandeering your life from whatever type of storyline you have devoted yourself to or been swept up in at some other point in your life. It's God commandeering your life and bringing you from a path of destruction into a path of life. That's what salvation is. That's what Christianity is. That's what these guys all recognize. They all realize that our lives have been commandeered by God. And the reason why they know that is because the story of Jesus. They know that Jesus, even though these most horrific circumstances took place and really literally overpowered what it would view or what it seemed to be, overpowered Jesus, and he died this bloody, brutal death, they know the story didn't end with the grave. The story actually continued on three days later. Imagine three days, how terrifying and horrifying that was. There's a sense of loss of hope. But the rest of the story was that Jesus rose again from the dead. That's really the story. It's one of the things I've been saying for the past several weeks, that really, for the most part, this is what the Christian story is all about. It's not just simply life and death, or life, suffering, and death, and I'm going to say this, punctuated by moments of happiness or joy, but the story of the Christian gospel is life, suffering, death, punctuated by moments of joy, plus resurrection. In other words, God adds this reality, this dimension, this layer, that the rest of this world does not find within their storyline. And so what the apostles, no doubt, were reminding themselves throughout the whole storyline, is that we are not just on some sort of random typhoon in which we are powerless. I mean, we may be powerless, but at the end of the day, we know that God is in control of these circumstances. In other words, they found themselves within the story of God. So one of the things I want for us to think about is that every single one of us here, to some degree, live in some story. That's what I, that's what I, what I want for us to consider Every one of us live connected to within some type of paradigm or story or narrative. The question is, really, what type of narrative or storyline do you find yourself into? What type of paradigm or story or narrative do you, would you say that actually defines your life? Here's a couple ways in which, a couple different isms, if you want to think of it this way, isms that by which many people within our world, within our culture, live according to. Here's a couple of them. One, uh, I think of consumerism or materialism. It's not just simply a way of lifestyle, it really is a story. It's an alternative story which many people in America live according to. It basically says, look, we live in this material world. Why not just indulge our souls with everything we have because we live in America, because everything's cheap. We can buy a shirt for 350 at 
you know, Forever 21, everything's cheap because it's made by some sort of slave in other countries that might as well buy, consume as much as we can because at some point, life is worthless, life is cheap, so just enjoy as much as you can. That is, for the most part, a narrative or a story which many people, especially in California, we live according to. That's the story we live. I grew up Huntington Beach. That's kind of where I'm from. Orange County is where I came from. So that is, in a lot of ways, the storyline. It's just consumerism and materialism. Buy, consume, devour as much as you can because you never really know what the rest of life is going to hold. So you might as well at least have the best things, the most you know, modern technology, the most expensive stuff, the most fanciest car, the most amount of surfboards, the most amount of whatever it is that you can because there's no guarantees of tomorrow. Again, this is a storyline or a narrative by which many people simply live according to. It's what defines some people's lives. Another way or ism to think about is nationalism and its counterpart, which I would say is militarism. So nationalism basically is kind of this mentality of like, I am an American, right? I mean, you see that most boldly, I think, in America, where uh, in most recent speeches, you can think of it like this American exceptionalism. In other words, it's the idea that as an American, aren't we awesome just simply because I'm an American? And oftentimes that comes along or preloaded with various forms of entitlements. In other words, as an American, we are amazing. We're awesome. We have the privilege and the rights to do what we want, to commandeer any other part of the world and take it over and bring other people into subjection because simply we are American. That is, by definition, it's a narrative of nationalism, which basically along with it comes with a sense of pride. We are great. We are awesome. Our American way is better definitely by far than the African way or definitely better than the Indian way or definitely better than South Korean way. We are Americans. We have the best Way. It's nationalism, and alongside the counterpart to that, I would say, is militarism. Because at some point, to defend that way, you've got to have might. You guys, you guys following along? Is this making sense? You have to have might. You have to have some sort of power to protect those interests. So the reality is that these are paradigms or worldviews or various forms of stories in which people live their lives within. Another ism I think about is intellectualism. Being in a college town, this is no doubt a temptation for some. It's the idea that basically says all life can be made sense of basically by the amount of technology or information or knowledge or wisdom that you can accumulate. The more you can accumulate, the more that you can uh, expand your intellect, your understanding, your thinking, the more that you'll be able to make sense of life. Again, it's a worldview. It's basically a way by which we oftentimes live our lives according to. It's a story that makes sense of everything around us. I think oftentimes that leads to sort of an an agnosticism, another ism, which basically, to some degree, the more knowledge you have, you can begin to realize, like some, I don't think that there is any type of knowledge that we can really build our lives entirely on, so it leads to sort of this mentality of like, I just don't know. I don't know anything, which is kind of the idea of agnosticism without knowledge or without basically making truth claims. So what you're left with, for the most part, in America or within the world of agnosticism is that there is no such thing as a truth claim. So this is why when a Christian, for example, says Jesus is Lord, why sometimes within a context or framework where somebody is uh, an agnostic, they would look at that and say, do you realize how arrogant that is? You can't say that Jesus is Lord. How do you know this? How do you know that to be factual or truth? 
you're just an arrogant person. You should never say those types of things. That's the idea behind uh, agnosticism. Now, that, it's, a, it's a frame of work, a frame, a frame of mind that basically leads someone to basically just saying, there's no claims of truth that you can really know for sure, so you just live your life in this world of uncertainty. There's no certainties you can literally drill down on. So, again, to think about this is another way is Epicureanism, or another ism is Epicureanism slash Hedonism. So, Epicureanism was an ancient form of philosophy, which, for the most part, had a perspective of God or gods. But the problem is, is that this, this God or gods or goddesses, whoever it is, who created all things or it was involved in investing themselves into the formation of this world... We, don't, we can never really know who this god or gods or goddesses are because they no longer live in our galaxy. They have checked out. They're distant. They're foreign. They're, and even if they are here, they don't really care about life. They don't really care about you. They're impersonal. You cannot pray to them. You cannot go snuggle with them. You cannot ask them to be a refuge because they're totally indifferent to your life. So that oftentimes leads to this kind of form of hedonism. Hedonism is basically just this love of pleasure where, all right, so this mentality, okay, if God, think about it this way, if you lived your life according to this, and if in your mind you're like, I'm not really sure if God is real, I don't even know if, if God is real, I'm really not even sure if he loves me. If you live according to that particular mentality, at some point you will then begin to take control of your life and say, there's really nothing that can be certain, so I'll just live for what is certain, pleasure. I can download porn. I can have as many sexual relationships I want. It doesn't really matter because what matters is right now how much pleasure I can get out of the moment. So in short, I think this oftentimes can lead to one final ism, which is cynicism. And it's a worldview. It's a way of defining your life whereby you've tried lots of different things. Every one of them at some point has failed you. And therefore, you don't trust anybody. You don't trust anything. The word cynicism actually comes from an ancient Greek word, which means dog. It's, you have this existence really in a way that is sort of dog-like, whereby you just are part of the system. There's a guy by the name of G.K. Chesterton. He said this, and I think it's a really profound quote. He says... Whoever marries the spirit of the times must soon become a widower. Think about this. Listen to what he says again. Whoever marries the spirit of the times must soon become a widower. In other words, the question that I would have to you is what story do you find yourself in? Like what, how, what do you turn to to make sense of your life? Some of the most profound things that oftentimes demand for us to make sense of is in the form of suffering. Um, when we suffer, when we find ourselves confronted with things that don't make any sense to us, when we are trying to make sense of our own pain or the pain of somebody else that we are brought into in their life, one of the most challenging things for us is where do we turn to somehow define that or bring some sense of understanding to that? And then what G.K. Chesterton is basically saying is that when we allow some other story other than Yahweh's story, God's story, to define us, at some point, that story will hit an expiration date, and when it dies, we'll be left as widowers or widows or however you want to describe it as somehow absent without any hope. What I love about these early disciples is they just looked at their life and they realized, okay, look, Judas betrayed us. He's gone. What do we do? Where do we go? They all reminded themselves, look, we're, we've been swept up in this thing. We've been commandeered by God into something that's beyond us. God somehow knows purpose for our life. 
We don't always know answers to big questions in our lives, but it's not always knowing why things are happening or what's happening. What the Bible does for us, it almost rarely, if ever, gives us answers as to why we suffer. This is kind of the shocking reality of the Bible. It doesn't tell us, okay, here's why you're suffering. It might tell us the end of what suffering does. In other words, it might bring about character. But when you're in the midst of suffering, the thought of being like, hey, cheer up, you're going to be made into this great character is not really comforting because it doesn't bring healing in the midst of our great tragedy. But what the Bible does promise us is that in the midst of suffering, we have a God that knows what suffering's all about. That's what the Bible describes. So here's the disciples. They're suffering. Their good friend that they've known for three years, perhaps even longer, betrays them. It leads to this tragic death of Jesus, and it leads to all sorts of confusion amongst the ranks as to what's our way forward? How do we progress? How do we move forward with this thing that God's called us to do? What do we do? They remind themselves we are part of something that God has begun. The reality is we've got to remind ourselves of that. In fact, much of the New Testament really is nothing more than this. Let me give you an example. Romans chapter 8, Paul writes to Roman believers, and here's what he says. Verse 12, he says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if we live according to the flesh, you will die. And if you, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For ye did not receive the Spirit to slavery, to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption of sons, whereby we cry out the Father. In short, what really Paul is saying here is that don't forget you are not orphans in this world. Think about it this way. Adoption is a form of someone else commandeering the life of that lost child. That's what adoption is. In short, it's like, it's, it's, it's a takeover. It's coming in saying, we're going to take you in and all the things that you were without, all the things that you lacked, all of the sense of pain and exploitation and vulnerability will no longer be the case because we are opting to be your parents. That's what God does in salvation. He says, I'm going to rescue people that were once locked into a system of materialism or hedonism or cynicism or skepticism. I'm going to save them and rescue them from a future that will once only leave them in despair and brokenness and destruction, what Jesus describes as hell. So they remind themselves of this story. The second thing that I noticed is that they sought out scriptures. They sought out the scriptures. So again, the reality is they're kind of like, what do we do? How do we make sense of this? Judas is gone. And what's fascinating to me about this is that, that you, obviously these guys are seeking diligently the word of God. They're kind of pouring through the scriptures. They turn to the Psalms, which is really where they find a lot of stuff. And what's fascinating in verse 20 is it describes this little recitation from Peter. Peter seems to be sort of the spokesman for the early apostles. Peter stands up, and then he begins to say, um, in verse 24, it is written in the book of Psalms. Then he quotes this random passage, Psalm 69, verse 25. says, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. The picture that Peter's deriving from this is that, oh, this 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 is a passage about Judas. I mean, think about that. It's kind of shocking on one level because it's like many of us, we, we look at the Bible where we're trying to figure out how do we make sense of our life. Someone might come to you and say, well, read the Bible. The Bible has all the answers for you. But the reality is that that's not totally true, is it? Because in other words, you might be asking the question, God, what's the name of the person that I should be marrying? And the Bible's not going to necessarily be the book that's going to tell you the name of that person unless, of course, their, Bible, their name is a Bible verse, 
all right? But the fact of the matter is, it might tell you the type of person you're to marry. It might not tell you the name of the person you're supposed to marry. So what's fascinating here in this passage is that Peter's scouring the Bible and trying to figure out, like, what do we do with this fact that we have uh, uh, one number less than this ideal number of 12? More on that in just a second, why the number 12 is so significant. So Peter goes and he scours Psalms and discovers that Psalm has some, some, something very significant to speak to their, their current condition. And then later on, Psalm 109, it says this, let another take his office. So Peter's reading that. He's just like, this is amazing. Because so God is instructing us through his word to find another to take his office. No doubt, and again, in Peter's mind, that this is the Holy Spirit referring, speaking to them, issuing, dealing with the issue in their life, that yes, one has denied them, Judas, uh, that Judas needs to be replaced, so let another fill his office. So in Peter's mind, he's reading this, he's looking at this and saying, this is what God is telling us to do. So in other words, uh, the short, simple answer is that they're looking to the Scripture for wisdom. It's one of the reasons why we encourage people, often, read the Bible. Now again, depending upon the type of questions you're answering, asking in the Bible, it's not always going to necessarily address every question you have. But what it will do is it will point you to, if you think about the Bible really in the most simplistic way, is as a book that points to the greatness of God. That's really what it should be doing. Pointing us to the fact that we have a God that's in control of all things, of our lives. And yes, there are decisions we need to make. Yes, there are things that we need to investigate and think about. But we have a God that actually cares about us, and this is what they do. They look to the Scriptures. So really, Peter, as well as the others they kind of appear to see this need to replace Jesus or replace Judas for at least two reasons. One, because it seems as if the scriptures are indicating that they need to do that. But the second thing that one, uh, several scholars actually have pointed out, uh, the second reason is that it seems to be that their understanding of structure needs for uh, Judas's role to be replaced. So this goes back into the question of the number of the 12. All right? So think with me for a second here. Why did Jesus select 12 apostles. Why not 14? Why not 80? Why 12? What is Jesus accomplishing? What's Jesus seeking to do? Again, most scholars would all agree that really the number 12 is significant because 12 is the significant number that correlates to the number of 12 tribes. So if you know anything about Israel's history, you know that Israel was basically formulated upon the backs of 12 various families. We call those families tribes, 12 tribes of Israel. So what Jesus is doing, most scholars would agree, that when Jesus calls 12 and not 14, not 80, Jesus is basically reconstituting a new Israel around himself. In other words, what it appears very clearly that Jesus is sending out these signals, these messages, these signposts saying, guys, everyone is in Israel. I'm doing something new. And the new thing that I'm doing is I'm recreating an Israel around myself. The 12 is a significant number. So in the minds of the apostles, they're like, well, wait a minute, we only got 11. Like, we're, this whole structural thing is kind of broken, and we think we need to fix it because the scriptures seem to be indicating this as well as the structure seems to be pointing to the fact that we need to get back to the number of 12. What's fascinating to me is that there's one scholar that said this, and I'll just I'll read it. It's really a profound statement. I'll just read what he says and just think about this. He says this, too often in Christian circles, a question about the structure of the church and how it's governed is answered by seeking 
uh, but is answered by seeking some other period of the church, or in other words, a fixed pattern or a model to be copied. However, what the entire book of Acts abundantly shows is that the heart of the matter is not the structure of the church, in other words, but its mission. Soon, in the book of Acts, the Spirit will call the church to a new dimension of mission that will require a sort of leadership different from that which the apostles themselves had even envisioned. So what does that all that mean? What it means is this, is that the apostles were kind of in this primal state of the church. And they, were, they felt the call to be responsible to take forth the gospel, even though they were terrified of engaging at all with the culture because it was a hostile culture. But they felt like we've got it. Jesus started the structure of 12. We only got 11 right now. We need to get back up to 12. So in other words, trying to get back into this structure. The, the fascinating thing is that most scholars will recognize that as the book of Acts goes forward, what you see is not so much an emphasis upon what the 12 are doing, but what you see is sort of this migration away from Jerusalem as well as the 12 into something entirely different. So in other words, if you want to think of it this way, the book of Acts is really portraying this picture of fluidity being open to what the Holy Spirit wants to say and what the Holy Spirit wants to do. And in other words, what we oftentimes do as human beings is we look for a, a structure that worked in the past. It may have served a purpose. It may have been really important. It may have been good. And what we do is we oftentimes go back to that structure and we say, well, what was it like you know, 10 years ago? What was it like 35 years ago? And we basically make that the paradigm. And we say, well, we can't veer from that because that's how we did it 15 years ago. Or that's how it worked, you know, back in the 40s or whatever it was. And what happens is oftentimes that's what leads to what we would describe as institutionalism. In other words, the church becomes hampered and broken because rather than being current with what the Holy Spirit wants to do right now, we're literally hindered and paralyzed by trying to relive the past or rebuild upon an ancient structure. And what the book of Acts seems to move forward stating is that the Holy Spirit is always wanting to bring about the church into new locations, not necessarily based upon ancient structures. So I think all that simply says and means to us is this, is that they sought the scriptures. The scriptures are, I mean, they are built on objective realities, but they oftentimes begin to allow us flex within various cultures. That's one of the reasons why, for example, throughout church history, there, believe it or not, there are moments in church history where they said you cannot have drums in a church. The only way that a church can flourish is you have to have an organ. That's it. All right? And if you introduce any other type of music in the church, then it's the devil music. All right? So what happened was in the 60s, late 60s, 70s, was, God forbid, drums were actually introduced to the church. So believe it or not, there's some that were like, this is an evil, wicked, satanic type of a church. Uh, has nothing to do with God or God's... But now we look at, you know, in our culture where drums and other types of musical instruments, for the most part, that we just kind of take for granted are just part of it. But the reality, at one point in church's history, that was like the worst thing you can do because it was violating a structure that was, for the most part, embedded in certain people's minds. And what the Holy Spirit wants to do is that when we find ourselves in moments of, God, what do you want to do in my life? We want to go to the scriptures. We want to also keep a heart that's filled, that's open, that's fluid to what God wants to do currently, right now, in our context, in our situation. That's what we see happening within this passage. Third thing is that they strategized with what they had. This is where it gets a little bit interesting in the story because the third thing that we see is that they were trying to figure out how do we discern God's will? 
What do we, how do we move forward? I mean, we've got this problem of only 11. We need 12 apostles. What do we do? And so what happens is we're actually told that they begin to draw lots. And again, um, without going into too much detail on this, if you heard last week, Jamie Pappas did a great job uh, describing what lots were. But in short, it's just sort of a common Old Testament way of trying to discern God's will. And what's fascinating to me is in the passage or in the story of Acts, there's no rebuke on that. There, like, there's no passage that, that says everything that the apostles did prior to chapter 2 is null and void and ridiculous. In fact, if anything, what's really just simply saying, if anything, it, what reveals to me is that God was faithful. God helped them. God led them in spite of the fact that they really were just using what was in their hands. So what I take from this, I realize that a lot of times we're trying to make sense of what God is wanting to do in our lives. Again, anytime something happens to your life, whether it's tragic or whether it's confusing or whether you're kind of at a crossroads and you've got to make a decision which way to go, at some point you've got to figure out, ask questions, what, how do I make sense of this one and how do I move forward, number two. And again, you're going to find some way to begin to move forward, whether it be by finding your life in another story that at some point will lead to a dead end or finding your life within the story of God, which will lead to life, even though there may be challenges and difficulties in the midst. So what we see here is that they just simply had just simple things, and they used it as means to strategize, like make decisions. At some point, we've got to make decisions. You know, here's a really cheesy Christian cliche, and some of you might like it, be like, I have that on a coffee mug. But the point of the matter is, it's, some of you may have heard this like passage or this like cheesy cliche, it's just, um, do your best and commit the rest. I think in reality, that's, that's, that, that's totally true. It's great theology. It's kind of what was going on, is that they were doing their best, and they were just simply committing to God the rest. They had limited resources, and what the resources that they had, no matter how limited they were, they were doing the best that they could to make sense of God, and at the same time, just simply trusting it, and trusting it all to God, saying, God, you know our hearts. Help us make sense of these things. And finally, we're told, fourthly, that they all prayed. And the thing that I realized about their praying is three things. One, we see in verse 14, is that's unifying. It says that they were all together praying. The word emphasizing, the word all, is indicating the women, uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus. Um, again, if you were here last week, Jamie does a, did a great job kind of unpacking the, the significance, the radicalness of women being a part of this company. And all of them, they were all together, rich and poor, young and old, male and female, all together seeking God for their future. Uh, there's a sense of unity. Second thing is that we're told that they did this frequently. It was something that they committed themselves to regularly, frequently. In other words, I think the idea here that's being conveyed is that this was just sort of, um, it was a natural response, natural reaction, that when things got rough, when there were challenges, when there were big things that they could not comprehend or make sense of, the natural impulse of their life was just, just to get together and be like, let's pray. Let's just pray. Let's just seek God in the midst of this situation. It's one of the things, honestly, I've been really trying to do even within my own life, even within my, my relationship with my, my wife. We're going on 25 years of being married. It's funny, but the reality is that our, our relationship has not always been whereby we pray all the time. We always just turn to prayer at some point. But one of the things that we've been doing over the past several weeks is just learning to cultivate a regular praying time. And again, really for us, it just simply looks like this. I mean, for the most part, I get up early, early in the morning. My wife goes to bed really late at night. So while that simply means is we're oftentimes going like this with each other, 
throughout the rest of our day. I'm up in the morning. She's still sleeping in. I go to bed really early. She's up till really late. So in the morning when I get up out of bed, we're not really like talking or connecting. But one of the things that we've been really trying to do is just say, let's, let's just get new habits and develop new patterns whereby we just pray together. Every day, even if it's just like four or five minutes. This is pray, pray for our lives, pray for people that we know that are going through tragedies, difficulties, need wisdom. Let's just spend some time praying. And it's been, been awesome. And, you know, honestly, again, I, I look at that and just say, we are really trying to cultivate and develop habits whereby we are just praying frequently for everything. If something comes up, we just, let's just stop and let's just pray. Seek God for wisdom, counsel. And finally, we see that this is just honest and genuine. Verse 24, I'll read it and then finish. It says this. It says, and then they prayed and said, Lord, you know our hearts. And in that phrase, you get this idea that they're just basically saying, God, you, you know all that we've gone through. You know the terror of our hearts. You know the circumstances, the confusion that we face. God, you know the limited resources that we have, what we're trying to make use of. God, you know our hearts. We just want you. We just want your will. We just want you to show yourself and do something in our midst, on our behalf, so the reality, that's kind of what prayer is. It's just this honesty before God. In short, really, that's what worship is. It's just this honesty, this rawness before God. It's just, God, here I am. I'm nothing spectacular, nothing great. I feel broken. I feel desperate. I feel like not even singing right now. But God, here's all that I have. Here's what I got. I just want to give it to you. You know my heart. The reality is that the Bible is pretty clear that it does not always give us the answer. The Bible does not promise to give you the answer to every question that you have. What the Bible promises is to give you a Savior. It promises to give you a God that can commiserate with you, be with you in the midst of your misery. That's the story of the Bible. And this is what we see in the scriptures. So in other words, if you think of it this way, the idea of seeing our lives being a part of God's story and God inviting us, this is what Jesus is always doing. So when Jesus sits down and tells a parable, it's like there's a story of a guy who's going around and he's having a party and he's inviting people. That's this picture of God saying, come into my story. My story involves a table, involves bread, involves wine, involves broken bread for you who are broken to be made and made satisfied. It's God inviting us into his story. But the reality is that many of us hear invitations to that sometimes and we greet it with cynicism and skepticism and worry because we're not absolutely convinced that anybody really cares about anybody that much. And the shocking reality that we see with God is that the reason why we can trust him to enter into his story is because we have a God that entered into ours. It's, it's, it'd be, if you were to transpose this into a storyline like Lord of the Rings, it would be like Gandalf, all right, or Frodo Baggins meeting Gerald Tolkien, somehow showing up in the midst of the storyline. It'd be like C.S. Lewis sitting down and talking to the four kids, it would be this picture uh, of somebody entering into the story and leading the way, being a part of the misery, part of the pain, part of the, dis the discovery of shame and hardship, and how do you move forward in the midst of all this. That's what the Bible offers. That's what the go gospel invites us into, is to come to receive this story. And when we do that... Every time we affirm ourselves in that story of God, 
it's simultaneously a denial of every other story. In other words, when we say, I belong to God, his kingdom, his life, simultaneously we're actually denying the fact that I don't belong to consumerism. Militarism is not my story. Cynicism is not who I am. It's not what defines me. It's not where I find the sum total of my identity. But the same is true backwards. Every time we say, I'm a consumer, we're also simultaneously, to some degree, saying, I deny the life of God. This is what Jesus invites all people when he says, repent and believe the kingdom. It's his way of saying, at some point, we have to choose what kingdom we will associate with, what story will define us. And it's the idea of saying, I will deny, I will repent, turn away from these alternative narratives and turn to the story which brings life. And this is the reality of where we find ourselves is we have circumstances and hardships just like the other church we're trying to make sense of in our lives. Like where do we go? What do we do? How do we navigate our way through tough decisions, through suffering, through hardships, through pain? How do we make sense of these things? Again, the early church didn't have a template They didn't have a book. They didn't have a self-help section. They did have scriptures. They did have the Holy Spirit. They did have one another. And everything they had, they used. And they sought God. And they had this raw honesty whereby they can bring before God and just say, God, we don't, what we have, we give to you. God, guide us. The thing I love about the story of the book of Acts is this constant ongoing narrative stream that God is somehow in charge. God is breaking through into these broken people's lives and he's making them whole. That's the story. If you believe it, you can find yourself in right now. The reality of that sets us free. That means that we can worship God even in the midst of tragedy because even though we can't make sense of our pain and suffering and hardships, what we have is a God that somehow shares the misery with us because he's in our lives. He invites us to be part of somehow the redemption that he's bringing through it all. Let's just close on this thought. I'm going to have the worship team come on up, and I'll just finish the thought. That I was listening to a message this past week, and the guy was talking about how really in suffering, oftentimes we're trying to make sense of it, and the reality is what the Bible basically says is that suffering somehow has this redemptive quality to her by those that are in Christ. The story of God is that even though Jesus suffered, God used his suffering to somehow bring him out on the other side of death into life, and therefore that's what the early church found themselves in. They realized that even though we may suffer, even though we may all be victims of violent death like Jesus was, we know that we know that we know that God somehow co-opted us commandeered our lives to be part of something big that he's doing. We might not be able to make sense of every circumstance right now, but we know that God, even though, like what Jesus just described it, he may not be safe, but he is good. Uh, he describes, the guy I was listening to this past week, he was describing like the story of a child like living in a womb, like a fetus. You know, here it is in this womb. It's kind of like this environment. It's this universe. Like that's, that's all they know. They know amniotic fluid. They know the side of the mother's womb wall and all these other types of imagery. This is, this is the sum total of their life. And this child, this child was able to actually somehow reason from within the womb. They would ask themselves a question like, what, what's the purpose of these things called feet? There's nowhere to run. And he was saying, the reality is that those feet were not intended for that womb. They were part of that child's life, but really is ultimately for another world. In the same way, he was pointing out that our suffering, our challenges, our questions, our confusion, the circumstances that we find in our lives, 
don't always make sense in this moment, but somehow God promises to use all of these things in a way that will give us life and feet and freedoms and a life to come. And it's, we hold on to this hope that somehow in the midst of it all, God is somehow making all things good. Wait, Paul writes in Romans 8, for those who love Jesus and are called according to his purposes. So my hope, my encouragement to you, if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, would be that you would hear the call of God to come to that table to receive from him, turn your back on alternative storylines that lead to your death and brokenness and trust in his life. If you're here this morning, you are a Christian. And we, as all Christians, we go through these stages where uh, we have amnesia. Sometimes we forget, that's right, I'm part of God's kingdom. And we oftentimes give our hearts over to these alternative narratives, consumerism, militarism. We want to beat the tar out of somebody. We're angry. We find ourselves filled with vengeance and wrath. And we give ourselves over to these things. And at some point, we, by definition, end up denying the very good life that God has called us into that leads to life. So wherever, wherever we're at, I invite you to just come press into God. The way that we do that is by responding as we sing, partake of communion, and we have some people available that would love to pray for you.
we just exalt you. We lift up your name. We pray that we would find you here this morning.